0: Uh, verses nine through thirteen this morning. Uh, the question that uh, that this passage asks, and, and so I'll ask it to uh, to start us off: Is how do you recognize genuine love? Now, not just from a biblical perspective, we're certainly going to get to that, but how do you recognize genuine love? People say they love each other all the time, uh, but how do you know when it's sincere? How do you know when it is authentic and when it is real? I came across this news article uh, recently, which uh, this kind of story pops up every once in a while, Uh, but I want to suggest to you that that Alan L. O'Neill does not know what it really means to genuinely love another person based on this story. Thanks to Facebook, keeping your wives, plural, from finding out about each other is almost impossible these days. Corrections officer and alleged bigamist Alan L. O'Neill learned that lesson the hard way when Facebook suggested his two wives friend each other, leading wife number one to discover a picture of her husband and his second wife standing in front of a wedding cake. (laughs) Now O'Neill is facing bigamy charges in a Pierce County court in Washington state. If convicted, he faces up to a year in jail. Now, I want to stop right there and say, if, if you read the news carefully, you could tell a lot about the person writing the article. This is obviously a single man who wrote this article because he thinks O'Neill's biggest problem is going to jail. <laughs> That's the only place he's going to be safe. He's got to tell his attorney, I don't want a plea bargain, just let, put me in jail. <laughs> it goes on. O'Neill, who used to be known as Alan Falk, married his first wife in 2001... And he moved out in 2009, but neither he nor his wife ever filed for divorce. In December of 2009, Falk changed his name to Alan O'Neill, and a few weeks later, married wife number two. The first wife was apparently totally in the dark about Falk O'Neill's second marriage until Facebook listed number two under People You May Know. <laughs> I love this. Wife number one clicked through to wife number two's Facebook page, and there it's where she saw the beautiful picture of them and the cake. O'Neill's first wife confronted him about the second marriage. He acknowledged that he was in two marriages. Good for him. Now he's going to tell us the truth. But asked her not to tell the authorities until he was able to fix the situation. But what do you know? She did tell the authorities, (laughs) and now O'Neill is due in court later this month. Oh, my goodness. whatever sincere love is, is the polar opposite of that. (laughs) Here's a guy who who defines love uh, by what he can get about how someone else is going to meet his needs. Now, in in the verses we're going to read this morning, the introduction to the verse, Paul starts off by saying, love must be genuine. It must be sincere. And then he goes on to describe what that sincerity looks at, how it plays itself out in our lives. And so I want to suggest, as, we, as we're going to read this passage in a second, that sincere love, a genuine love, is an attitude that is identifiable through our actions. Sincere love, genuine love, the love about which Paul is, is writing, is a love that is identifiable by the actions of my life and the actions of your life. Uh, so we're going to try and avoid O'Neill love this morning. Romans chapter 12. Verses 9 through 13. Hear the word of God. It's in your uh, program. It'll be on the screen, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him, alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we have, we have sung this morning of your glory, we have, we have sung of the mercy that you have shown us that we could actually, through Jesus, become a friend of God. Father, not as the world describes it in a demanding love, of course God has to love us but rather in a humble love that, that, that looks at ourselves through a, a realistic lens and sees our brokenness, sees our shortcomings, and understands that we do not deserve the love of God. And yet He has so graciously given it to us through Christ Jesus. Well, Father, you save us not just for our relationship with you, not just for the vertical, but also for the impact it has on the horizontal, on the relationships we have with one another. And specifically, Father, in this passage this morning, you talk to us about how we are to interact with one another, how the, the love of Christ is actually supposed to, to not only enter our lives, but then seep out of our lives into our relationships with others. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to not just get our minds around this this morning. But, Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts with your truth, Father, I pray that, that you would show us where we are falling short and where we are following you in this, not because uh, you want to uh, just kind of beat us over the head and, and, and tell us that we've failed, but Father, because you want to see us grow in our trust and our hope and our, and our love for you. And you know when that happens that it impacts others around us. So, Father, help us not to be defensive. Help us not to uh, approach this with an attitude of um, uh, unbelief. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Forgive me for my sin, Lord. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, real quickly by overview, Paul says, uh, let love be sincere. And the word that Paul uses there for love is is the word agape, which many of you are familiar with that term. But if you're not, there, there are three different words for love In the New Testament. The first one is a, is a love that is just kind of a, a polite type. You, you know, you, you're nice to people. You don't really have a relationship with them, but, uh, you, you know, you're, you're a a nice person. You're a polite person. You, you care well for people when you have the opportunity. Uh, the next love, and he'll use the next love in this passage, is, is a brotherly love. It's the Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Phileo is the, the Greek word, and, and that's a love between siblings. It's a deeper love. It's a, it's a, it's a friendship, a tight friendship type of love. And then agape, agape is a love that is the most intense type of love. It is a, it is a self-sacrificing love. And Paul says this kind of love needs to be sincere. This type of love should define the disciples of Jesus. So whether people have ever heard of the word agape or not, when they see you and I interacting with one another, When they see a a Christian couple uh, living together in marriage, when they see Christian business partners interacting with one another, when they see a church community, a spiritual family like Green Tree uh, treating one another, they should see agape love. And as they see that, they should be compelled to consider the claims of Christ. And so Paul says, this love must be sincere. Now, the word that Paul uses for that word sincere is literally the word from which we get hypocrisy. So what Paul is saying is love must be without hypocrisy, but you have to understand the context of Paul's day to get that word. What Paul was using, what he was referring to in this passage, is a word that was used in Greek theater. In a Greek theater, a person could play up to 10 or 15 parts in the story as the play was acted out in in front of the audience. It all depended on the mask the person was wearing. So if the actor came out and he had a tragic mask on, you knew that maybe that was the villain or, or that was someone who was very sad, but then he or she may go off stage and come back with, with a mask that was, you know, was radiant and smiling, that might be the, you know, the, the character that was coming to, to bring hope into the story, but it was the same person wearing different masks. That's how we got the word hypocrisy. Paul says there shouldn't be a bunch of masks you wear when you're interacting with one another as Christians. Love must be sincere, and it must be this agape, this unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love. Now, right away, if we're going to be honest, and we need to be, we have a problem. We are, by a culture, defined as consumers. In other words, the first question that you and I naturally ask in any given situation is, what's in it for me? How quick is the drive-thru going to have my hamburger ready? I, I ordered this and I didn't get it right, and you need to fix it for me. Uh, I Get me customer service online. How many people are actually infuriated when you want to call and talk to somebody and you've got eight recorded buttons you have to push before you get to somebody? Come on, tell the truth. If you don't raise your hand, you're lying, okay? <laughs> I'm like, operator, 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 just give me an operator. And then by the time you get to the operator, you know, you just you want to grab them and choke them. Why? Because it's all about me. I don't care what kind of day the operator's having. I don't care if they went to their doctor yesterday and found out they got cancer. I want them to fix my problem. And friends, if we're not willing to look at this passage honestly through the eyes of a consumer, then we do disservice to ourselves and to our Lord. Part of being a disciple of Jesus is admitting that it's by grace we're saved and we need grace because sometimes we come at life the wrong way. And I think this is one of those passages that we can look at and go, yeah, that's really cool. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And then we we kind of forget that that's actually our starting point tends to be what's in it for me. And Paul suggests that sincere love looks radically different than that. So I want to give you five observations about this passage, and and ask that that all of us would consider uh, our own lives in light of how Paul now goes on to describe these five points of sincere love. So he says, if you want to know what it looks like, how it practically works its way out, here it is. So in in, in uh, the second part of verse nine, Paul starts out and says, we need to be clear headed. We need to be thinking about things in the right way. And so he says, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. So there's a negative and there's a positive. Now, Paul says, abhor he evil, detest, uh, hate it with a strong intensity. It's not like, oh, I don't like evil. It's like, I I can't stand evil. And the word that Paul uses for evil there is the only place in the book of Romans where he uses this word. Uh, And the word, it's the strongest word in the Greek language for wickedness. And when I say the Greek language, I don't just mean the Greek New Testament. I mean, in Paul's day and age, if you spoke Greek and you wanted to talk about something that was absolutely vile, that's the word you would use. And so Paul says, we need to understand that if if the love of Christ is going to flow in us and through us, it means that we must make some moral decisions. It means that we must land on the side of Jesus when it comes to the issue of sin, our culture and you and I more often want to excuse our sin. We want to make light of our sin. As the social mores of our day ebb and flow and what was wrong 20 years ago is now applauded as right. And those who would stand against that particular, whatever it might be, sexual preference or uh, idea of freedom as people you know shape it and word it, anybody that would stand against that is intolerant and is a bigot and is wrong. And Jesus says, if you're going to stand with me, If you really are going to love, then you need to hate what is evil. Now, is God being closed-minded? Is God being kind of a stick in the mud, so to speak? Well, what is evil? I would suggest that, biblically speaking, the reason Paul tells us to reject wickedness is because this way of thinking, this lifestyle, this way of approaching the world, not only rejects God, but it destroys mankind. It breaks our relationships with one another. I'm going to take you back to Proverbs 6 for just a second. This is a very famous passage of Scripture uh, where, where the author starts out by saying, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So there's that really strong word. Now look at this list carefully. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers, God hates these things. Now, let me ask you a question. Show me one item on that list that has any impact on God whatsoever. There's nothing in that list that is offensive to God because it is attack it is a, a an, an a obvious attack against him. God's list of hatred has to do with things that we do. To one another. Have you ever had a mom or dad come in or maybe you're a mom or dad and you've walked in and say, why are you treating each other that way? <laughs> you ever had that happen? You now you walk in and, and, and you know they're going at it and, you're, and, and you love both of them, but they're not loving each other you know, quite the way you're loving them right now. And you're like, your brother and sister, why can't you get along? Why can't you treat one another more nicely? Why can't you be kind to one another? And they kind of look at you, smile, and then you leave the room and then they start beating on each other again. But, but you're in pain, not because they're hurting you, but because they're hurting one that belongs to you. And so when God says hate evil, he's not trying to rain on your picnic. He's not trying to rain on my picnic. He's actually trying to protect the people around us. The more I hate evil, the better I'll treat you. How about that? And so God says, hate what is evil. But then he says, hold fast, uh, cling to that which is good. Hold on to it with a firm, firm grasp, right? Hold fast to what is good. Cling to that which honors God, but also is beneficial to others. God strengthens us through the way in which we interact with one another. The love of Christ flows through us when we set our minds on that which is honoring God, that which which brings glory to him and also edifies others. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a lot of you know it by heart. What? And your neighbor as yourself. Let's all say that together. And your neighbor as yourself. I didn't do that this week. There are so many places where I fell short of that simple command. But Jesus understood, and God understands, that, that if we're clear-headed, <laughs> if we're thinking the right way, if I'm clinging to that which is good, it's going to have a positive impact on your life and on the, on the community of faith around me. The second observation about this sincere love working itself out is in what I've called dynamic friendships. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. There's that phileo, that, that deep, abiding friendship, um, where we care for one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul says you want to love each other the way siblings love each other. How does, how does a brother love a brother? How does, how does a sister uh, love a sister or a brother? And, and, I, and I thought of some, some words. I said, you know, they, they cheer them on. They, they support them. Uh, they, they protect them. Uh, at times, they admonish them. Uh, I remember when Nate is eight years older than Jordan, our two sons, Katie's in the, in the middle. And uh, I remember there was a, a time where Nate had to take Jordan to hockey practice. And Jordan's like eight years old. And when you're eight years old, you know, mom or dad are still in there in the dressing room with you because there's a lot of equipment to put on. And, you know, you kind of you get out on the ice. And you kind of walk like that when you're a little guy. And, uh, and so I said, Nate, run Jordan up to the rink and help him get dressed. And so like, they uh, go up to the rink, and they did their deal, and they come home a little while later, and I said, uh, how'd it go? And Jordan said, I had, to, I had to get dressed myself this morning. I said, Nate, I thought you were supposed to help Jordan get dressed. He says, if Jordan wants to play hockey, he can dress himself. <laughs> That's how brothers treat one another. But you know what? I never had to dress Jordan again. The rest of I'm like, thank you, Nate. What a, you're going to be a great father, and you're only 13 years old. This is wonderful. Don't Don't start that too quick, but you're going down the right path. So fast forward about I don't know, 14 years, and last summer, Nate gets married, and we're at the reception, and I'll try to get through this. Jordan has to give the speech, the best man speech, and Jordan, who never says two words in our family, he's the quiet one, because he's the youngest, and everybody talks for him. You know, he asked Jordan a question, and Katie answers it, and she's the Holy Spirit in our family anyway, so (laughs) that's the way that works, Um, and Jordan gives this toast, and I mean, everybody is just, we're like, you know, what did you do with the real Jordan? Where is he? I mean, it was so affirming to his brother to the point where my oldest son, who mocks me for being emotional and teary, I don't know if you remember when Nate became a deacon and he mocked my, my crying. Thank you that some of you remember that. Nate stood up to give his response. Couldn't do it. Could not do it. He tried for five minutes. And finally he said, just sit down let's eat dinner because it's getting cold. Because he was so moved by a brother's love. And all those years, Jordan was noticing He was paying attention to how his brother was caring for him. And and Paul says, that's what we're looking for. We're we're looking for an attitude that says, what's in the best interest of that person? And how can I serve them? Not what's what's the nicest thing I can tell them. Sometimes the best thing that you can tell me is, Tom, there's something in your life you need to see you're not seeing and it's not helpful. It doesn't mean we don't confront. In fact, there are a lot of times when we need to confront, but are we doing that based on that brotherly love that wants the best for the other person. Good brothers don't ask the question, what's in it for me? Good brothers care for their siblings in a way that is deep and abiding. And I and again, and I'm and I'm picking on me as much as I'm picking on on you this morning. This is a radical shift of thinking for us. Not just Green Tree Community Church, but all of christians in western society but i'm only responsible for us so i'll leave it here this morning we don't think this way friends we begin with what's in it for me and it's not ugly and it's not obvious it's it's a little bit below the level but it's there it's there in my heart it's there in our hearts and this is an opportunity this morning i think before we come to the lord's table to freely confess that say god thank you that you don't love me the way i love other people (laughs) And, and create within me that brotherly love and affection for those around me. Paul says that's how sincere love shows itself, through dynamic friendships. Thirdly, it shows through a passion that has perspective. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, don't be slothful, don't be lazy in zeal. Uh, be fervent in spirit. Now notice that's a small s, so he's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. He's talking about our attitude. He's talking about the way we approach life. Be fervent, be Be intentional. Be purposeful in the way in which you approach your relationship within your Christian community. Serve the Lord. Here's the perspective that we need to see. The the passion there, the the intentionality of serving one another is actually what? It's serving Christ Jesus. So when I care for you, when when I love you in this way, when I'm fervent in spirit and not lazy about it, I'm actually doing what? I'm actually serving the Lord. I'm serving Christ who lives in you. Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Jesus is talking about the judgment seat. And he he says to the people he's welcoming in, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you came and visited me. When I was in prison, you came and cared for me. And and somebody who's brave enough in that moment kind of goes, could I ask a question? And uh, and the one who sits on the judgment seat says, go ahead. And they said, Lord, I got to be honest, I never saw you hungrier or thirstier. I never saw you in prison. You know, I lived 2,000 years after you walked on the earth. I I never brought you a cup of cold water. And the king replies, when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it for me. There's the perspective. You see, if Jesus walked in the room right now and said, you know, would you go, I got a flat tire, would you go change my flat tire? We would break each other's necks trying to get out that door to be able to say later on this afternoon on Facebook, I changed a flat tire for Jesus. But are we that intentional in seeing Christ in others and knowing that when we serve one another, we actually are serving him? Uh, I love when, when Cindy and I have late afternoons, early evenings where we're both home at the same time because her job is such an amazing job. She deals with, with at-risk students and there's just, there's always a story. <laughs> There's always a story about, you know, somebody that, that cussed her out in the hallway and, you know, it was just made a mess of the classroom and, you know, it was so disrespectful. And, and, and she's getting all emotional about it. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're angry, right? And she goes, no, I'm just so sad. You know, they don't even see their own, you know, their own potential. They can't even see themselves the way God sees them. And the reason she's so good at what she does is because she sees in these children Jesus and and you know, th- you know, they're they're cussing her out one day and then they see her graduation and they're all over hugging her, and I'm like, I am not getting it. It's because they experienced that unconditional love. And and they saw it lived out, and, and and when she looks at them, she sees the opportunity to serve her Lord. Do I see that when I look at you guys? Do you, do you see that when you look at one another and you look at me? It's an opportunity to honor the Lord Jesus by the way. We have genuine love in this congregation. We have a passion for one another with that perspective. The fourth observation of the five is this, that we're big picture people. Now, that, this is a, a, we're going to have to work through this for a second. Paul says in verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hopes means, rejoice in hope means that we view life in the context of eternity, it's not just 60, 70, 80 years, but rather we understand that when, when we close our eyes in death, that's just turning a page of the very first paragraph of the introduction of the book. We haven't even really begun to experience all that we're going to experience in Christ because this life is but a breath. And so we face this life, we make decisions in this life, we set priorities in this life, we, we go into relationships in this life built on that eternal context. We are confident in Christ. Our joy is not in the temporal. It's not based on how we're feeling today or how well our business is doing or what kind of grades I got on my test or did I get that promotion or not get that promotion. Those are all worthwhile things. I'm not saying we ignore those things, but our joy, our, the, the, the peace of our inner being is not based on that because we are always forward looking. And so we are patient in hope because hope has not yet been completed. I was hoping that my daughter would get an engagement ring. She got one last weekend. I'm not hoping for that anymore. Now I'm rejoicing in the reality. It was so wonderful to talk to that young man on the phone and say, by the way, I'm still paying for a cell phone. Now it's yours. It was just that was one of the highlights of my life. It was just a great moment. And he kind of paused for a second. I'm like, no, you already asked. You you still have to propose. Um, But there isn't a hope there. Now there's a hope for the wedding day. See, hope is always forward looking. And as we are forward looking, we know there's a day when our hope will become reality and we will see Christ. And that gives us perspective in this day and age so we can be patient in tribulation. Now notice that, that he says patient in tribulation. He doesn't say brave in tribulation. He doesn't say strong in tribulation. He says patient. Why? Because what we're doing when we're patient is we're letting God do his work in our lives. Remember, his work is transforming us for our good and for the good of others. He's actually bringing things our way that are difficult from time to time because those are the moments in which we grow in faith the deepest. If I'm not facing any challenges in my life, if if I'm not needing to depend upon the Lord and on his wisdom, then my my faith is almost in idle. It's not moving forward. I'm not being challenged. It's like saying I want to get stronger but not going to the gym and working out. It's only when you get into the, the, the friction, the push and the pull of, of the exercise or get on the machine and get your heart rate going that, that, where it's hard and you want to quit. That's where the growth comes and so it is spiritually. It's in those moments of challenge where we are being fitted by the Lord Jesus to serve him in a deeper in a more profound way. I was reading recently again of, of uh, George Marshall who's one of my uh, heroes. He was the, the commander of all the Allied forces, uh, he he served President Roosevelt in the Second World War, and he was the chief of staff. And he was in an interview in October of 1939 with a news reporter uh, by the name of Brian Elliott. And Elliott was asking him about uh, how are you going to prepare for what seems to be coming? Who are the who are the who are the men who are going to lead us on the battlefield? And Marshall said, you know, I, I I'm concerned about that. And, and I'll read you the direct quote. He says, "The pre- present general officers of the line." are for the most part too old to command troops in battle under terrific pressures of modern warfare. He went on to say, I do not propose to send our young citizen soldiers into action if they must go into action against commanders whose minds are no longer adaptable to making the split-second decisions of the fast-moving war of today. So I said, okay, well, then then how are we going to be prepared? And they talked a bit more, and Marshall said this. He opened a drawer of his desk, and he handed Elliot a sheet of paper. I've made a list, he said. I looked over the colonels, lieutenant colonels, and some of the majors in the army. I've chosen some men who were personally known to me and some who were recommended to me by others and whose judgment I have confidence. Elliot remembered most of the names, Devers, Hodge, Hodges, Patton, Eisenhower, Eichelberger, Patch, Collins, Simpson, Clark, Truscott, Crittenberger, and Bradley. And the marshal said this, I'm going to put these men to the severest tests which I can devise in a time of peace. I'm going to start shifting them into jobs of greater responsibility than those they hold now. Then I'm going to change them suddenly without warning to jobs even more burdensome and more difficult. I'm going to allow them plenty of room to think that I am treating them arbitrarily, even unreasonably, that I am asking of them more than human beings should be required to deliver. Those who stand up under the punishment will be pushed ahead. Now, just as an example, uh, between... Uh, 1940, 1942, in two years, Dwight D. Eisenhower had five different posts, which he was moved around. He was shuffled between Texas and Washington and the West Coast, the South, and eventually back to Washington. And that was all purposeful because Marshall believed that Eisenhower was the man who needed to command all the forces in Europe. And he was right. But it wasn't because he saw the potential It was because he knew he was tested under the fire. And when the Lord says, I see your potential, and I'm going to bring you a test, I'm going to take you through a difficult time, and we think he's treating us arbitrarily, even unfairly, that speaks more to our spiritual maturity than it does what Jesus is actually accomplishing in our lives. When I say, God, you're not being fair... That, that, that isn't an accusation that sticks on God because God's never unfair. That simply says I haven't grown to the point to which I need to grow. Now, I understand that we go through some very difficult, terrible times in our lives. I'm not saying that, that knee-jerk reaction of, Lord, why are you doing this? I'm not saying that's a sin. But I'm saying if we're constantly living in the immaturity of, God, you better do it my way, we will never have an impact on our culture because God won't let us out of this room. He won't let us go back into our community with any, with any amount of zealousness because we do more damage than we would do good. But when we are patient in tribulation and we don't take our eyes off the cross of Christ and we understand through, through um, our hope that we are forward-looking, that God is doing something amazing in our lives, that will make us constant in prayer. Nothing makes you pray more than being in the foxhole, so to speak, right? But when you're in that place, You're letting God do a work in your life, and you've got this ongoing dialogue. You're saying, Father, help me. Father, strengthen me. Father, teach me. And that's a person who has the big picture. The last observation I'll give you, I know I've I've gone a little bit long here, but the the last observation of, of love being sincere, not only are we big picture people, but our care is consistent with our creed. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In other words, be a people of grace. I mean, that, that's grace. When you give somebody, you do a favor for somebody, they have a need. And you can help meet that need. The resources that God has given you, you can help provide. You're, you're, you're being gracious to them. When you show hospitality, somebody somebody comes by and, and uh, needs a, a roof over their head or they, they, they need a meal, and you're, hey, come on over to our house. Absolutely. Hey, let me, let me bring a meal to you or whatever the case may be. You're, you're showing grace to others. You're not, you don't have to do that. You're choosing to do that out of the resources of which God has entrusted you. And as we demonstrate that grace, we're saying we are aware and we are available. We are aware we are interacting with one another enough in life to know what's going on. And we are available to care for each other. We know that, that what is lacking and we use the resources God has provided to, that allows us to help others. So, what every church needs, but again, I'm not in charge of every church, thank goodness. Uh, I just help a Green Tree Community Church. What Green Tree Community Church needs, what Tom Ricks needs, is agape love. What we need is not O'Neill love that says, What's in it for me? but we need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, so that we have an identifiable, an action that's identifiable, or excuse me, an attitude that's identifiable by our action. The way we live with one another shows that this agape love is sinking deeper and deeper into our hearts. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Remember chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's what God wants to do in your life. It's what he wants to do in my life. Part of the reason we're celebrating communion this morning is because by partaking of the Lord's Supper, our hearts and our minds are renewed by the grace of God. Agape love is probably more often than not unnatural for you and for me because of our sinful nature, because of our brokenness. We probably tend more towards the what's in it for me than how can I care for others. But agape love is the natural love of Jesus. Agape love is the reason that there was a cross. Agape love is the reason that I have hope, that you have hope, and that by God's grace, we can share that with one another. Let's pray.